If you're just joining us on Sunday morning this summer, I began a series of talks at the beginning of the month entitled, Always on My Mind, Learning to Think Like Jesus, and it is a study of the book of Philippians. The key verse from the book of Philippians is Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5, that says, this, you must have this same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The King James Version is even more direct. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or to borrow a phrase from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he said, we have the mind of Christ. Learn to think like Jesus. Keep Christ at the center of your thoughts and your meditations. Get out of your own mind. Yes, it's good to go out of your mind. Go out of your own mind and let Christ be your thoughts. Let Him do the thinking and the acting and the reacting for you instead of yourself. Find the heart of Christ, the very soul of Jesus, His morals, His ethic, His actions, His way, His spirit, His direction. Let Him be the engine that moves you and drives you and energizes you and causes you not simply to think and to feel, but as Paul would also say, in Him we live and we move and we have our being. When you have the mind of Christ, you have Him living His life through you. Another of Paul's phrases, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives through me. We rely upon Christ to live through us. And in doing so, we are shaped further into His image. Our text today is Philippians 1, 27-30. And we continue our series. And this is the New Living Translation. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God Himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. We are in this struggle together. We have, you have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, and repeating a phrase from earlier in the letter, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. And this is the Word of God for the people of God today. Almost every Sunday... Billy McConnell and I have this ongoing dialogue. No, not that dialogue, Billy. I won't tell him that one. He gives me commentary on my talk. People always ask me, what does Billy say to you when he comes up there on the stage after the sermon before communion? Well, I'm not going to tell you everything he says when he comes back. But we have this running commentary. And sometimes he says, oh, that was good. You know, boy, boy." 
And sometimes he says, that was really good, as if I'm incapable of meeting the standards that he holds me to. And sometimes he doesn't say anything at all, and I know I've disappointed him. I'm just kidding. He used to talk to me before the talk. He'd say, what are you going to tell them about today? And I'd give him a little trailer of the movie to come. You know, a little, little snid bit for him just to get all excited about. He stopped asking me, whether he knows it or not, what are you going to talk about today on July 4th, 2010? <laughs> we were meeting in the public shopping center then at Watercolor. And he said, what are you going to talk about today? And I looked at him and I said, the idolatry of patriotism. And he started pulling at the list of what little hair he has left on his head and went to pacing back and forth like he was watching an Alabama football game. Oh my God, what are you talking about? And I said, just hear me out, hear me out. And he did, and we made it through. We're still friends. And we've made it through all these years as I have returned to that subject time and time again. And we will make it through again today. I didn't go looking for this subject. It has found us. The opening line of our text. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. As we learn to think like Jesus, and as we move toward the mind of Christ, understand this. Our allegiance must be to Him and to His kingdom above all else. How timely, again, that we have this subject when citizenship and belonging and allegiance is such an ever-present subject today. Paul is as timely in the summer of 2018 as he was in the summer of 60 A.D. when he first wrote these words. There are two subjects upon which I speak and write that generate the most controversy. Two. First of all, I can say hell or bastard the way I have the last few Sundays, and I'll get a couple folks go, oh my. But, or how dare you. If I mention my love for brown whiskey, I'll have two people that will say, well, I never. To which I say, well, you should. It's very tasty. <laughs> what, what my wife is talking, would you... Yeah, I do have a few that now bring it to me. They're supporting my habit. Talk about human sexuality. Problems with calling the Bible inerrant. Women as pastors, something I do support. And I get the usual pushback about those things, but it's mostly polite and tame. Mostly. But I bring up two things, and they come for me like a lioness hunting prey on the Serengeti. Nationalism and its twin brother, violence. Say publicly that nationalism is a hindrance to our faith, as I have been saying now for well over a decade, and people will hate on you. They will write nasty things to you and about you. 
They will call for you to be sent to Guantanamo Bay. And I'm not making that up. They will leave your church. And I'm not making that up either. And say that violence is the preferred tool of nationalism. It's how nations must maintain their nationhood. But that Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who revile you and they will call you every name in the book. And for just a moment, note this graphic if you would. Since 1776, the red color are all the years that the United States has been at war with someone. And the blue are the years of peace. Two decades in our great nation's history. I do that, I say that just in passing because I'm going to leave the violence piece alone for the day because nationalism will be enough to give us all heartburn. To quote F.P. Dunn, the job of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And we will all go home afflicted today. (laughs) We should all be made uncomfortable by Paul's words. For we are all steeped in, discipled by, and baptized as nationalists even before we are Christians. America does a better job at discipling its citizens than the church does at discipling Christians. And that's not an exaggeration. That's repetition. There is no new material today. Everything you hear me say today, I've said here before from this very text, but it must be repeated because Paul is right. This is a struggle. We are in a fight. Not against flesh and blood, but it is a struggle for identity. Are we going to be shaped by our identity as Americans? Or substitute whichever country you want to put there. Or are we going to be shaped by our identity as followers of Jesus? I wish we could have it both ways all the time, but we cannot. We have those rare moments of compatibility, but mostly we have to choose. Who gets my ultimate allegiance? Do I pledge to an earthly kingdom that is temporary, or do I pledge to the kingdom of heaven which is forever? The biggest threat to the Christian faith in North America, and it will be this way for the rest of my life, the biggest single threat to authentic New Testament Christianity in North America for the next 50 years is nationalism. Where we take Jesus and wrap Him in the flag and we profess that there is no difference between being an American and being a Christian. And my friends, there is a world of difference between those things. As hard as it is for us to hear, it is true. Patriotism is a good thing. It's good and right to be patriotic. To love the land of your birth. The community that has formed you. The common history that we share. But nationalism takes it a step further and says, my country is the be-all and the end-all. My country is superior to all others. My country is always right. My country is what gives me my identity. And as Christians, 
We cannot go that far because what gives us our identity is the kingdom of God and what holds us together is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a constitution, not a flag, not a pledge. I hold patriotism at arm's length and I have for some time now. I'm not much of a flag waver because I am not a nationalist. I hold these at a distance because I want to hold Jesus to my heart. And I don't want anything to get in the way of that. I aspire, God help me, to be more committed to Christ than to my country. I want to hear again what the good book and the old timers used to say to us. This world is not my home. I am only passing through. We are exiles. We are aliens. We belong somewhere else and we happen to be living here. And so what holds the church together as a community is not the Declaration of Independence. It's not the American flag. It's not the place of our birth. The bond that unites us together is Jesus. And our allegiance is to Him. He is our King. He is our Lord. It is His kingdom we serve. In Him we stand. And no other kingdom can demand our principal loyalty but His. That's as clear as I know to say it. Well, I can say it a little clearer. Making the affliction. Oh. Making America great again pales in comparison to the pastoral task of making Christians Christ like again. That's as clear as I can say it. Now, you can pick any political motto that you want because they're all mottos in competition. They're all asking for our ultimate allegiance. And you may not have known you got into all of this when you became a Christian, but you did. For years and years, it's been easy to be a Christian in the United States. It's hard now. It's different now. And never have our allegiances been so called into question as they are in the last generation. To the text, Philippi, and this will make sense to you here, Philippi was a Roman city. It was a Roman colony. About 40 years before Jesus was born, a guy named Caesar got murdered. Did you read Shakespeare? Ete, Brute, they killed him. A young man named Octavian, his adopted son became Caesar. He would become known as Caesar Augustus. He would be the Caesar when Jesus was born. Well, after the fallout of his adopted father's death, he waged a battle against Mark Antony and all those other historical figures that we read about on the plains of Macedonia outside Philippi. And when he won, he turned to his legions and he said, for helping me win the battle, I give you the city of Philippi to rebuild as a Roman colony. And those legions retired immediately from the army and they rebuilt this city and it became a miniature Rome. Large walls, great trade, prosperous in every way possible. And they were proud of their citizenship as Romans. You would be hard-pressed to find a city anywhere in Europe or the Roman Empire at the time that was not more patriotic than the city of Philippi. We would say they were wrapped up in the red, white, and blue. Or the red and purple, if we look at the Roman colors. They were citizens. Next slide, if you would, please, Tom. Back one. There you go. 
In, in the Roman world, there were three categories of people. The first category were slaves. 30% of the Roman Empire was made of slaves. Can you imagine that? 30%. They had no rights. They were property. The next category of people, strangers. 50% of the Roman Empire were strangers. They weren't slaves, but they weren't citizens. They had no recourse in the courts. They paid an extra tax because they were not citizens. They had it easier than a slave, but not quite as good as a citizen. Only 20% of the Roman population were citizens. Only 20% of the civilized world were citizens at the time. And here is Philippi, a city of card-carrying Romans. They won the ancient lottery. They got the break. And everyone around them does not have that high, high calling that they have. And Paul writes to them and he says, Good for you that you're citizens. What a privilege. But understand that your true citizenship is where? Live as citizens of heaven first and foremost. You are called to an allegiance to Christ before you are called to an allegiance to empire. Well, Ronnie, this all sounds great and all, but are you bringing politics into it? Well, I'll save you an email. <laughs> Everything is political. Not everything is partisan. Everything is political. Because the Greek word for politics means the people. So if you ask somebody, what's your politics? And they hand you a voter registration card of a particular party, they haven't understood the question. What are your politics is simply the question, what do you value as a people? What are your values as a society? What holds you together? So in that regard, if you look at it like that, everything is politics. And what I am bringing to bear today is what John Howard Yoder called the politics of Jesus. Because the politics of Jesus are rooted in an ethic and in a belief and a value that surrounds Him. We live by humility, by meekness, mercy, Justice, peacemaking. We resist lust and dishonesty and vengeance. He instructs us to love our enemies and to do good to those who don't deserve it and to turn the other cheek. He warns us about unbridled greed and then He sums it up all by saying this, that if you want the ethic and the politics of Jesus, here it is. Treat everyone else as you would want to be treated. Love God and love your neighbor as Yourself. That is the ethic of Jesus. That's our utmost allegiance. You can join all the parties you want to. You can participate in a society any way that you can and you should. But do it first as a Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christian before anything else. Because that becomes the ethic that drives us. When our world... And our nation is destructive and murderous. We take the side of life and living from the delivery room to the courtroom. Siding with sacrifice and nonviolence, peace and restoration. 
With the world, our nation is appetite-driven and consumeristic, then we go with simplicity and generosity and graciousness and thanksgiving. If our world, our nation, brags about what is shameful, we think and brag on what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. If this world, our nation, is cruel and unjust, we go with mercy and reconciliation. This tug-of-war for our allegiance, this struggle comes down with wrestling with a simple question that is a whole lot more than four little letters on a hipster's bracelet. W-W-J-D. What would Jesus do? Not, what would my political affiliated party do? Not, what would my social club do? Not, what would my neighbors do? What would Jesus do? As Christians living in the 21st century, that is the question we wrestle with and that is the question we aspire to live out. To live as Jesus would have us live. So Ronnie, you're saying that if we all start acting more like Jesus and less like citizens of the world, then our country's going to get better, right? No! (laughs) I'm not saying that at all. Because I can tell you what's going to happen if you start living like Jesus. Now, if you've tuned me out a few minutes ago, can you please tune back in for just a second? You start living like Jesus, I'll tell you what will happen. For the left, you will be too far right. For the right, you will be too far left. For the middle, you will be too far radical. And if you start living like Jesus, for you personally, things may not improve for you, they may get worse. You just might end up where Jesus ended up on a cross. Because the left and the right and the structures of power did not know what to do with a person who defied all categories with this redeeming love that embraced all people. And yet what choice do we have? If we are going to call ourselves Christians, then let us live up to the name and the one that we are following. I don't know what else to say or what else to do because all I have is Jesus. All I have are His words and His way. All I have are His Spirit. All I have are His commandments to love the Creator with all I have and to love my neighbor as myself. All I can do is follow Him. All I can aspire to be is a disciple. All that I can hope and work for is for heaven's justice to fall like a mighty river. All I can do is live like I belong to Him. And if that means living with a sense of alienation, a feeling that I don't belong anywhere along the spectrum of the world's empires, then God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. I hope that the testimony of a martyred Rwandan pastor could be my very own. I'll conclude with this. It's the, it's the declaration of a faith, a faith known as The Fellowship of the Unashamed. It was found in a Christian pastor's pocket in Rwanda after the genocide there, blood-stained. And it reads this. I am simply a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. My goal is Christ. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. But my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until He comes. And when He comes to get His own, I pray that He has no problem recognizing me because my colors are clear. May we pray. Father, give us the resolution of the earliest believers to obey God rather than men. Help us to be good citizens of Your kingdom first and foremost. Knowing that there are times when we cannot serve two masters. Keep Your church free from becoming captive to power, to nationalism, to partisanship, to idolatry, that we might be compelled and motivated only by the love of Christ for all. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.